I'm Piercy Janwell, and you're listening to Unsubscribed. Every episode, I sit down with business leaders to help you question everything you thought you knew about marketing. If you enjoy this show, please do subscribe and leave a review on YouTube or your favorite podcast player. Now, on to this week's episode. Today on the podcast, we've got Steve Moody as our guest. Steve's a serial entrepreneur and consultant with over a decade's experience with marketing automation and CRM. He's someone who truly brings together both the technical and business aspects to his craft. To me, he's also one of the most interesting people I know. And every time I talk to him, my first question is always, where are you in the world? Because it's rarely the same place twice. Uh, so yeah, thanks for joining us today, Steve. You ready to get started? Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So I've already asked you where you are because we chatted last week. And even though you're, you know, it's the middle of the pandemic, you've managed to get abroad. So yeah, maybe tell our listeners where you are right now. Yeah, I'm in Barcelona right now in Spain. Um, I I was started the year in California and then I planned to to move to Bali. Uh, And then when the pandemic started happening, I tried to get out of Asia as fast as I could and ended up in the the country with the worst lockdown in the West. So <laughs> I recommend you take no advice from me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so before this happened, you were planning to live in Bali. And I, you've lived in Vietnam before as well, right? Yeah, I, I spent four years in Vietnam. Cool. And uh, what were you planning to do in Bali? Um. Well, I don't. I don't know. Uh, what uh, What could you not do? <laughs> was, yeah. Uh, well, actually, what excited me about it. Um, I was working on a startup to uh, somewhat compete with Eventbrite and, and disrupt the conversion rate for um, for offline events. And I realized for the first time in my life, my my source of income was not tied to Silicon Valley. So I thought, oh, well, I could live anywhere now, and it won't affect. I can still uh, wake up at the same hours because I won't have to have clients in California. So where do I want to go? And then Bali kind of showed up on the list. Nice. Um, and uh, actually, I started with recruiting a CTO uh, who was going to be there for New Year's. And then I started looking at the details of going there. I was like, oh, I could live there. <laughs> Waterless right. took over. Um, but you're originally from Las Vegas, right? I know uh, I have a family. I have family in Las Vegas, but I was okay. uh, born in Northern California, uh, okay. just fifty miles from San Francisco. Cool. Um, and I, I read on your LinkedIn that it said that you initially wanted to be a lawyer, but it looks like after you kind of got a glimpse of that world, you had a different idea. <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't really expect the the investigative reporting. This is great. <laughs> We come prepared, man. Digging behind behind the Martech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, you know, growing up, I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, my stepdad was a lawyer and, and uh, I just really admired him. And, but he always said, don't be a lawyer. I was like, we're yeah. crazy. It sounds amazing. And I, I loved wearing suits and, and arguing and debating. And um, I got some good, good advice that before you invest in a career, uh, work with someone who's 10 years ahead of you. 
And so I spent some time working with lawyers and I found that almost all of them were unhappy and they were, uh, it's a profession that appeals to being alcoholic. And um, I thought, well, I don't know if that's the path I want to lead. So <laughs> thought I'd go a different way. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so great. And we've talked actually a lot about this on the podcast that, you know, it's, it's hard to know. You kind of have to decide like in high school what you want to be when you grow up, when you actually have no idea what those jobs are actually like. Um, and uh, it, it's funny because I was in a similar situation. My dad was a doctor and he always told me never be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, I worked in his office one summer and uh yeah i kind of saw like you know the things that you don't see in the movies and everything that makes it look very glamorous um interesting so so you you had some experience you know with your with being in the legal community for a little bit and then you how did you discover digital marketing Wow. Uh, yeah, it's funny because um, you know, I'm, I'm 36 now, but uh, I started working at 14. So I have 22 years of experience and uh, I think I'm on my third career right now. Um, so how did I discover digital marketing? I am. So I, I was working for, uh, I think it's a great way for how most careers should turn out. I was working for a law office and I was watching the news and noticed that a, that a company nearby was acquired that was in legal software. I'd never heard of legal software before. Um, so I kind of kept that in mind. And a couple of weeks later, I was at uh, the CES conference in Las Vegas. And I just started going up to marketers uh, because they're the ones running the booths and asking them for an internship. And because, you know, captive audience is the best way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I remember this one guy from Best Buy was like a biz dev uh, a guy, you know, doing mergers and acquisitions. And he just looked at me because at first he thought I might be important. So he he took a minute to figure out that I was not important. And then he just turned away and walked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But I see, I like that about you because I feel like you don't do what everyone else does. You know, I think a lot of people would think, hey, I want to get a job. I'm going to send a bunch of resumes out and go through the regular process. But you thought, hey, there's a marketing conference. I'm going to go to the trade flow, you know, the trade show floor and just talk to the directly to these marketers. Yeah, it kind of worked out on accident. I mean, I love cold calling. Um, I actually got the job in a law firm by um, I made a list of the 30 law firms in the city on a Google map. Uh, in like 2005, and I just went door to door, and uh, and one lawyer yelled at me at at his door, and and uh, apparently he was under deadline, and he felt so bad afterwards. He ran up to me three hours later, um, when his office was closed, and apologized and, and begged me for my resume. <laughs> and so that's how I got the job working wow. the law firm. Yeah. Wow. How? Hang on. Three hours later. So were you like waiting outside or what happened? No, I, it was, I was, I spent that three hours canvassing the city and, yeah. uh, and going to different law firms and just trying to find lawyers to, to get my resume. Yeah, yeah. 
and uh, and he he was going to the mailbox and and he just saw me and recognized me as as the kid he had just yelled at. It helped that I looked like I was ten. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think yeah. From what I've already heard and know about you, it sounds like you know. And this is a hard lesson to learn about rejection, right? It's like, you know, sometimes you you get rejection and you just have to persevere through it and, like, let it roll off your back, you know, because eventually you'll, you'll get connected with the right person and things will work out, but that doesn't happen unless you try, like, a lot of times. Yeah, and it, it, it depends. You it need more rejection, not not more more people say no to you, but you need braver no's. Yeah. So you know, a lot of people might cold call or or um, ask a stranger for you know, if you ask a stranger for money on the street, you know, you don't know who has money, so it, it's not such a good strategy. Um, but if you you know, before that job, I I walked into the office of a of a magazine collections office, and I walked in the office of the CEO and said, I want to work here when I was nineteen. And <laughs> and it worked, and and then he uh, he gave me uh, you know signed me to to his manager's manager, and and the guy would end up giving me more money per hour because than anyone else that had started entry level because it was like his boss boss told him to hire me. So. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. One of my first jobs was as a telemarketer, and I was selling like coupon books. And like talk about rejection. It was like people telling you no like every 30 seconds. And I'll never forget my first day there, the guy sitting beside me was like a veteran and he was just closing deals like on every call. I'm like, is he on a different list than me or what? And then he saw me struggling. He was like, here, let me take your next call. And he took it and he closed the deal. And I was like, all right, I need to learn more from this guy. But it definitely, yeah, yeah, it gets you in those repetitions of the rejection and makes you realize it's really not a big deal. What was he doing differently? Uh, He had like a really good story. And he had, so he had like an icebreaker to start the call. So he was like, um, you know, I, I forget the guy's name now, but hey, my name is John, and the great news is I'm not calling for a donation. And that <laughs> that kind of like broke the ice, and a lot of people would laugh at that and stuff. And we were selling coupon books, so we had this whole spiel. And then he he also told a lot of stories too, which I still like. The things he he had learned from just doing this over and over again and what works and what doesn't like I'm, I'm read about them now as like best practices and this guy just telemarketer like <laughs> he could have written a book I think um so I so you know you you worked at the law office then it looks like you got into a a relatively big B2B company. Is that where you kind of figured out like how big businesses work and kind of help you hone your craft in digital marketing? 
Yeah. Um, so I was at this conference and I'm, I'm getting rejected left and right. But I, I walk up to the booth at Seagate and I talk to a marketer there. And um, I was going to the same school that I think his daughter was going to go to in the fall. So he gave me his number. Uh, I meet with him two weeks later and he says, hey, you know, you seem great. I'm sorry. We have no we have nothing for you that pays money. All we can give you is an un, unpaid internship. But I said, oh, but you just acquired this company in legal software, didn't you? Um, and I, I work for a law firm. And he just looked right at me. He's like, yes, the director of marketing there um, is a friend of mine. Here's his phone number. <laughs> Call him now. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. So I go to the interview. And for, for six months, I had been getting you know, rejected for interviews because most people are like, what do you want to do in five years? And I say, I don't know. Five years is a long time. And they, <laughs> they give me a project and they say, do you want to do this project? And I say, well, I can do anything for six months, uh, but that doesn't really convey the, the mindset they were looking for. So, um, you know, Cisco rejected plenty of companies like, yeah, it's not going to happen. But then uh, I meet this, this guy at this company. He's like, what do you want to do in five years? Like, I don't know. He's like, I don't know either. <laughs> he's like, We'll let you try everything in marketing. And uh, so, so suddenly I was in marketing uh, as an intern doing uh, jumping around. Um, and within a week, they were having a meeting to discuss what work to give me because um, I had done all the work they expected me to do for the quarter. And uh, one thing led to another, and I was, I was running an integration with Marketo and, and managing AdWords. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And is that when you kind of got, got more into Marketo? Yeah, so I think we were customer 50. We were using a software at the time called MarketBright, which uh, we were their first customer, so they had custom built everything for us and had some great tools for partners that I still haven't seen in the, in the industry recently. But, um, but it just, then Scale had a lot of bugs. So uh, we decided to move mar to Marketo, and no one else in the company wanted to touch technology, not the, not the marketers. <laughs> They're like, yeah. we're yeah, yeah. not, not <laughs> in marketing to touch technology. Yeah, that's hilarious. That's really my experience too. I was at a startup, and well, I came from from IBM, and where we had Eloqua, and it was like one of the biggest rollouts in the world. And then I got to the startup, and like they had nothing. I remember that I just started at the end of year, so they were doing a presentation, and it was just like here are all of the 78 events that we went to this year. But there were no <laughs> numbers about, well, how many leads did we get? How much pipeline was driven? And then that was when I was like, oh, yeah, we definitely need marketing automation. And, uh, and then same thing. No one really wanted to own the project, but I was happy to because it was... It was something interesting and new to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, so, so then it looked. Then you started your first company, right after the B two B company. Yeah. So actually, at that B two B company, I was laid off three times, okay. um, <laughs> but they they kept laying me off because a big company they're required to tell you you're going to get laid off. So it'd be like two months in advance. Uh, we have to lay you off. I'm sorry. And then a week before, they're like, "Oh, never mind. We're going to keep you for two more months, but then you're going to be laid off." <laughs> so, 
<laughs> everything was falling apart. No one's there after 5 p.m. Like, in, you know, I, I'm working whatever hours. I don't care. But like the, the parking lot's empty at 5 p.m. Everyone's scrambling, trying to get their next job. I, I'm in grad school uh, pursuing an MBA. I, I want unemployment. I'm excited. I had never had unemployment before. I'd already worked, you know, eight years in my life. I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready to be on the government dole, but they wouldn't fire me. So <laughs> I, I kept taking on more responsibility and suddenly they, they would like fire the CFO. And I was the only one who had the data that the CFO had. So it got to the point where they couldn't fire me. And, uh, and then they're like, well, you know, we can't keep you as an employee or a contractor, but we can, um, oh, and I was going to be fired because I was an intern, but I was on an hourly uh, contract. So the database, according to the database, I was a contractor. And uh, according to their, to their stock advisors, they had to fire every contractor. So classic database problem, right? It's database over humans. Um, so at, at one point, they're actually going to... Um, uh, end my contract, hired me as a company, paid me triple per hour. I'm like, this is amazing. I love this. <laughs> I love America. <laughs> and then they didn't do it. And uh, so by the end, I, I discovered that um, I was actually more secure starting my own company. Uh, that, you know, having a variety of people I was working with, um, I, I wouldn't have one person deciding whether I would, I would lose my, my income or not. And that's really satisfying to me. Um, I think also there are some uh, some things I realized being young in a job and and not being respected. I remember uh, having some problems with with Marketo, and we had we just purchased Marketo, and you know I was all about lead nurturing. Like this is amazing. Like we can create evergreen emails. And I I uh, brought it up to my boss. Like you know I noticed you know we could do this, but we're paying someone who's job for copywriting is newsletters and you know how do we shift the culture to do evergreen emails and he's like you know just kind of brush it off and then two weeks later she starts name dropping marketo executives like she's been using marketo her whole life and and they're listening to her and she's like oh we should do scoring this way and they're like yeah that's a good idea i'm like i just said that (laughs) So I'm complaining to my dad about this. He's like, yeah, that's why you become a consultant because people actually listen to you sometimes and you get paid more. I'm like, oh, that's a good deal. Why am I, why am I doing the employee deal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so is that when you started Beachhead? Yeah. So I, I started a company to do um, something like TurboTax for immigration, um, trying to build out software uh, with, a, with a partner in San Diego. And I realized I, I, what I loved about immigrants was not their paperwork problems. And <laughs> it didn't really inspire me. I met someone who was more excited about it. So um, actually the first time I went to Bali, I was complaining to some people about, um, about Mark animation and how broken it, the culture was and how people just weren't doing it right. And uh, this guy, Dan Andrews said, Hey, you seem like you hate it enough. You should work on fixing that. And I was like, Oh, that's pretty good advice. Um, so then I decided yeah. to put my energy behind it. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so you started your first company, Greenlight, to do this immigration thing. Then you realized you're not passionate about that. And then you you switched your businesses. Yeah, it, it wasn't just passion. It was um, passion was required to do it. I think there's a lot of businesses, you know, I don't think you need passion to run a car wash. Um, mm-hmm. But starting a new business and a new market and getting people to change their behavior 
and and keeping at it until you find the right product market fit. That seems to require passion or delusion or <laughs> hubris. I don't know. It's one of those things. Um, I didn't have them. I, uh, and I realized because I wasn't an immigrant, I, I wasn't a customer. I didn't know right. how painful it was. Yeah, so yeah. I, I couldn't intuit the real problems that people had. Uh, and I was just an outsider trying to solve someone else's pain. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's super important to be passionate and to have walked a mile in your customer's shoes to mm -hmm. really get it, right? Like, if you haven't done that, I think you're right, like being the outsider. Or I think you can be an outsider, but if you are super passionate, that could overcome it because you can learn enough from other from the, the end customers to do it. Um, so tell me about starting your own business. You know, a lot of people, I think, um, can be nervous about taking that plunge into being an entrepreneur. What yeah. your mindset? Uh, my mindset is if you're in Europe and you, and you think you should start a business instead of taking a job, you're insane. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a very good deal to have a job in Europe. Uh, the, it's very good protections and starting a business is so much red tape in America. All the politics of America make more sense when you realize that corporations are first class citizens and humans are second class citizens. Um, there's a great story I read about a, a illegal immigrant from Mexico, uh, who was in Arizona and she couldn't legally get a driver's license. Uh, and she couldn't get a job because she wasn't there legally, but she was able to legally start a business. So she started a company ends up hiring five people, including one who's her own driver. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good for her. Yeah, but like that's that's such a uniquely American thing. There's a lot of countries where you can't um, get a loan for a business without um, any personal collateral covering the entire thing. There is no concept of bankruptcy for a company. There's no LLC. Uh, I, I know people who who had a you know twenty thirty thirty thousand dollar loan in a business they on equipment the business went under and they still owe the money for the business ten years later, yeah. um, so that's a default. But if you're in the U.S., the business is just a vehicle. It's like getting a free car. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. I it, I think it's similar up here in Canada, but maybe not as like pro business but it's definitely easy to like incorporate and start a corporation and get the benefits from that um so when you started it were you in the states or was that when you were in vietnam or you moved to vietnam yeah so i was in uh i was in the u.s I was in california in san diego um and really started that and focused on that business and then um it's kind of kind of isolated, you know. I I you know was what probably mid twenties, uh, starting a business. Didn't really have the the friendship from from work. Uh, wasn't close to you know people from college uh, for location. So I kind of had felt isolation. I discovered some communities online of business owners and realized, oh, like that's that's where my people are. Um, that's interesting. And uh, there was a conference in Thailand, so I decided to go there. And when I went there. Uh, it became clear that a lot of people wanted to stay there longer and, and get together and kind of collaborate. And 
Um, so there were like 30 business owners with completely different businesses and all of us sharing what they're doing and, um, you know, just the, the raw mistakes and challenges and um, just all kind of moved together uh, to Chiang Mai in 2013, I think. Uh, and that led to Vietnam because um, you can't stay in Chiang Mai during the rice burning season, the pollution gets really bad. So about half of us moved to uh, Saigon in Vietnam and decided just to start focusing there and, and uh, building up the team. Cool. And now was that this group of 30 business owners that kind of stuck together or that was your team? Um, so about 15 of the business owners moved to Saigon. Um, but then I, I built my own team in, in Vietnam. Um, I thought at the time, this market automation stuff's really easy. So I could teach anyone out of college uh, how to do it. <laughs> it was like, that's, this is going to be a cakewalk and I can just uh, pay them, you know, 300 a month, which is incredible there at, at the time. And uh, everyone will be happy. Yeah. Uh, didn't quite work the way I imagined, but I learned a lot. Yeah. I mean, from a business perspective, that sounds ideal because, you know, Marketo consultants are charging, you know, hourly, maybe what you would pay someone in a month. So mm -hmm. what, uh, what exactly was it that didn't work out with that? Um, I mean, definitely people have done this before, right? Um, so, you know, I, I think Elixir did a great job of uh, building a team in, in Montana uh, out of college grads. Um, it's possible. <clears throat> Ultimately, it's probably as bored. Uh, I don't think I liked it enough. And, and training people wasn't that exciting. But the big thing, again, just goes back to empathy. Yeah. They could never identify with the customers. They, it was mm -hmm. a different culture. Um, they, the customers were never coming over to meet them. I, I couldn't right. get any, so there, there was no empathy about what the customers needed. And mm -hmm. without that, it was just all abstract theoretical stuff. Yeah. And, um, maybe a, a better leader could emotionally inspire them to, um, care, but, uh, I, <laughs> that's not, that's not in my wheelhouse. <laughs> so, right. Um, I, I think that was the biggest thing was just empathy and, and, uh, getting that feedback loop of progress and, um, so it just became a different mindset. How long did it take you to kind of realize that that wasn't going to work? Um, I think I knew 18 months in or so. Um, yeah. and, uh, but at that point I was kind of moved on to trying to build uh, software and had a, about a third of the team was focused on building, uh, different software ideas and trying to shift into something that they did understand. Um, yeah. and also I found more interesting too. So it was a nice, uh, you know, more congruent in that way. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then it was, a, and that turned into a couple of years of just going back and forth, trying to sell things in California and run a team in Vietnam. And I didn't have a co-founder. So, uh, that's uh, a lot for, I think for any one person to do. And, uh, that's it just kind of burned out from that. Mm. And you were doing something with LinkedIn, right? Yeah. So um, one of the, the, the first decent idea we had that we built was um, around this idea of customer alumni. So uh, really thinking about the relationship with your customers beyond the Salesforce model, which yeah. uh, according to the, the world of Salesforce, your customer is a company because they send you the check. And um and my thesis, I think this is still a really important um, way to see the world, is that 
it's people who actually uh, trust you to make that purchase. And um, when they change jobs, their influence goes with them. So, you know, that causes attrition among your accounts. So you kind of have to play defense, but then it also causes uh, new opportunities, but no one could see those opportunities because they built everything around an email address that changes when the person changes jobs. Um, so without a universal ID identifier for the people, um, the no one with Salesforce could actually see the the value they had, the history of relationships. They just couldn't see it because the database model was not designed to see it. Yeah, yeah, that's a huge issue. Um, we've definitely tried to kind of be proactive about that with some different data pen vendors who can figure out when somebody's left a company, but. Mm -hmm. It's very manual still, and for sure, Salesforce can't really connect those two dots that are super important. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, congratulations, because you've run Beachhead for just over nine years now. Oh, God, has it been that long? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what I'm curious about compared to the first company you started, like, I think you touched on it a little bit already, just about how you're you're more passionate about digital marketing and you could really relate to the customer. Do you think there's any other factors that kind of made one business successful and long-lasting compared to the other? Yeah, um, I wouldn't say I'm passionate about digital marketing. I, I really hate digital marketing. <laughs> okay. I, and that confused me for so long. There are things I like about it that make it fun. Um, you know, when, when AdWords first happened, it was magic. I was working with a company that our average cost per lead was $300. And with one spreadsheet analysis, I was able to drop that uh, to, I think, 120. Um, with, with no with uh, no loss of quality and and so that's you know I, I love um, games that are driven by numbers and so that's very appealing um, and SEO is really fun when it was early on because you know the early on inbound with HubSpot you know they had they had these tools that they retired where you could actually just see these are the keywords that people are searching for if you just write a blog post about this keyword you're going to get ten people who are going to come to your site for this specific thing that's so narrow that they can't possibly not trust you. And, and it was magic. I love magic more than I love digital marketing. And, and the problem is there's not a lot of magic left in digital marketing. It's, <laughs> it's mostly just uh, Six Sigma incremental improvements at this point uh, and, yeah. and trying to find ways to, to buy more data against people's consent and not get caught or something. Uh, um, so, so I think the stuff that I love really kind of has left digital marketing, but to get to the broader question of, you know, why I kind of hung around this stuff, I think bro more broadly speaking, the intersection of marketing technology is so interesting because, um, tech, you know, Anderson Horowitz said software is eating the world. And I think it's, um, you know, there's a corollary where marketing is eating a lot of media. And, and so to see where those intersect is to really see a, a lever that can affect a lot of things. Um, so it's a really interesting place to play because if you're, if you're good at it, um, you can do really big stuff. At the same time, no one's good at it because 
it's so easy to be a marketer. Um, yeah. No one can, t can prove that you're a bad marketer. <clears throat> so, you know, anyone can be a copywriter overnight. Anyone can be a, a coach because they decide they're a coach. And so you get so many people who think they're good at these things. Uh, and because no one can prove they're wrong, compare that to uh, computer programming, you know, a few weeks in, you know, if a software developer is any good or not, um, you can see if they're actually shipping code. Um, you know, if a math mathematician is good, <laughs> you can look at, at what they're working on and you can kind of figure it out. And this is not true for marketing. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think the kind of more creative side of marketing falls into that category. I would argue that marketing operations people, if you really know what you're doing and you look in their systems, you kind of can tell if they're good or not. Mm -hmm. But I think there, again, it's kind of bringing it more back to the technology side than the marketing side. For me, that I think was a big factor on why I got into MarTech was that, you know, I just saw all these like creative agencies, you know, putting all these proposals to IBM and it's like, oh, well, I like the red one. No, I think the blue one's better. Like, I didn't want to be involved in any of that stuff. <laughs> um, so... So yeah, what what uh, what do you do now to kind of keep things interesting? Um, given the magic is, you know, kind of gone. What are you doing, Steve, to to keep things interesting? And I know you're a problem solver. So, what new problems are you finding? Yeah. Um, so. The problem I found last year that was really interesting. Um, I think you can you can convert uh, maybe triple the people to come to an event uh, if you change how people purchase the ticket from a um, a transaction that they you declare the specifics of a of an object and they decide whether to buy it or not to a a um, thing they can purchase that has variables depending on who else is going to buy. Uh, so. What I loved about it was um, it reduced marketing. It, it actually lowered the marketing energy required to get a customer. Uh, I think that's a really interesting space to look at right now because there's this arms race to spend more and more and more effort to get customers. And there's very few people spending time thinking about how do we just make this easier? Yeah. Um, and, and the ones who do are probably in UX or they're in consumer marketing. So, you know, at least they don't come up in, in my, um, in my field of view. Uh, and the thing I'm interested in at the moment is related to that. How do you use referrals and trust to, um, get more customers? Uh, I realize what I really hate about marketing is that most marketing is marketing to strangers and it, it works. I've done it, but it's, um, I don't know if you've seen this movie, uh, Ralph, Re Ralph Breaks the Internet. Yeah, I have seen that. Yeah, watched it with my daughter. There's this beautiful scene where, where they go to eBay and all the pop-up ads are just like uh, salespeople trying to distract them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's what it feels like now with marketing. It's just endless, endless craft, endless noise. And because it's so... It's so cheap to send more stuff. People send yeah. more stuff instead of sending better stuff. And um, I, I think the 
the result of that is everyone's sort of losing trust. And, and when you do get someone's attention, you are starting with almost no trust and you have this long road ahead of you to get to high trust. And um, I guess if you have good salespeople, they can do that. Um, I've never, I've always had most success um, having trust to begin with. So I just, I think it's interesting. Why don't more companies do that? And, and what could they do to do more of that? Because the sales that happen with trust are just more enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, referrals don't just um, buy more. They, they, they spend more money per purchase. They, they make more referrals and there's all these cool things. And you actually have a deeper relationship with the person that refers you. It just seems really, really virtuous in a, in a, in a cycle. Um, where most marketing, if you do great outbound uh, and you succeed, you have to start all over with outbound next month. <laughs> it, it doesn't. Right. It doesn't give you anything wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, especially right now, where everything kind of has to be digital, I feel like it's it's harder to build those relationships in a lot of cases. You know, I think of trade shows or events like those are really the scenarios where you can work with you know meet somebody face to face and i think that that's a huge step in building that trust with somebody where you can do it and i think there's definitely an, a huge opportunity for people to do better digital marketing um but I think still it's going to be hard to build that trust like you could when you could go and grab a coffee with someone or lunch or grab a drink with them after a trade show event. So, yeah, that'll be interesting to see how people can accomplish it. I've seen some pretty good examples of kind of mixing physical with virtual in COVID. Um, one person I know, they actually hired a bartender from like a really fancy New York City cocktail bar. And uh, they sent all the cocktail ingredients to all of the people who were invited. And then that bartender showed them all how to make the drinks. And it was kind of like, you know, this fun thing that's not a webinar that no one's paying attention to but actually something cool and then after they were able to kind of chat a little but mm -hmm. yeah it's uh yeah that trust and the relationships is so huge and then referrals can definitely drive that um so other than referrals i'm curious like what else do you see working well right now uh marketing wise I guess it depends on the product. Um, you know, sir, there's always a channel for everyone, right? Um, I, I think that what I've found, uh, my general conclusion is that almost every company can either do better referrals or they can do better software-driven marketing uh, because those are the things that are hard for marketers. Marketers are bad at referrals because they never talk to customers, so they don't know how to do it and they're used to strangers. And they're bad at software because no company in the right mind puts a good software developer in the marketing team. <laughs> That's the recipe for disaster. Right. Uh, so 
the result is the companies that do do that once in a while actually get outsized results. And the things you can do with software to help your customer um, solve their problems um, effectively, you can build any any company could have a free trial or a free app. Um, I think there's a huge gap in thinking, especially for enterprise companies with $300,000 deals. They think we can never do a free trial, but you don't need a free trial for your core product. You should have a free trial that just gets your, your prospects closer to wanting to buy from you. It could just diagnose their problems. Right. Uh, the magic of it is it scales and it's valuable. Yeah. And any, anything you can add to your funnel that scales and is valuable is going to get more people who want to buy from you. And, yeah. and meanwhile, you're getting better data. If you look at HubSpot's marketing grader, you know, they multiple millions in uh, the cost of, of replacement leads they got from that. Um, but then you look at the data, they, they can see everyone who's using it. They can, they're getting the scores on those companies. They know which ones are good. Um, they're basically marketers were raising their hand and saying, I want you to tell me what's wrong with my marketing. And then they, they could look at it and say, this is a good lead or not, because they actually had, were able to use that data to qualify. So why doesn't everyone have a marketing grader for their business? Uh, it doesn't have to be quite as good, but the, right. the leverage of that is so high. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. And I mean, look at Zoom and Slack, who are maybe the two companies blowing up the most right now both of their free trials are like pretty much the full software. I think they're, they're very smart in terms of what they limit in the free versions, mm -hmm. but it's definitely like, you know, they're leading with their product. And uh, I think more and more people are kind of, t or more companies are becoming product led because of like, online reviews and it's not uh, you can't really just sell a bad product and expect no one will figure it out like people know that now um but yeah it goes back to referrals as well so obviously at knack we're all about email um what role do you think email plays in in a marketer's toolkit in 2020 well as a as a recommender of NAC, I think it's going to be the most important channel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll check in the mail after. <laughs> um, I, it's going to be really interesting. Um, I, I love email. Um, I think it's, it's going through a dark ages right now. And I think it's going to bounce back in a huge way. Um, so I'm really excited about Hey.com um, from the, the guys who started um, 37 Signals and, and created Ruby on Rails. Um, they have so many people signed up on day one to pay $100 a year for an email address. And the basic premise is uh, you can filter out the people you don't want to see their emails. They don't go into your inbox. Your inbox is a special place. And by default, strangers can't get in. And that's hard as a marketer. That's scary. Um, but if you earn the ability to get into their inbox, and you have a relationship, then you have no competition anymore. Yeah, yeah it's true. I actually just wrote a blog post about hey.com. Uh, if anyone hasn't read it yet, it's up on our blog. But um, yeah, I think it's really interesting what they're doing. 
Um, I think it makes good marketers' lives better and bad marketers worse. Um, and so, but I, I do think too, it, like anything, it requires as more nurturing, I find with pay.com, right? Like you're still kind of doing work to make sure that your inbox is organized. Um, but they've definitely come out with some innovative things like, like the filtering, which is not just unsubscribing to people, it's actually blocking them at the server level. Um, and, uh, and, and also I think another big thing they've been talking about is the blocking the spy pixel. I love how they call it spy pixels to make it seem like it's the worst thing ever. But as, as marketers, you know, knowing if someone opened, which is not always reliable, but at least gives you some idea and clicks too. I feel that is actually the biggest impact for marketers is, you know, we're looking at what works well, like what content is engaging for, for our audience. And if we don't have that anymore, you know, it's hard to say what your audience is enjoying. I think there'll have to be other mechanisms to get their input on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you, you have an account? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got into their like early beta to just, Oh, you have like one of the one, one letter email addresses. Not that early, <laughs> but I got in before it was kind of like generally released. Okay. Yeah, cool. it's cool. I like it. It's so simple though, that it makes me feel like, can I use this for business or is it more of a, it right now, and I don't know if they've changed this, but it seemed like you couldn't get a business domain on there. Like you had to be at hey.com. So I think right now it's the personal for your personal account. But it'll be, in, I think the biggest shift would be, hey, are they going to allow branded domains on there? And then in that case, um, B2B marketers need to be concerned and, and definitely B2C marketers. I think it's a huge uh, impact for them. Yeah, I'm excited if someone signs up for my newsletter and they have a hey.com email address because I won't even bother trying to market to them in their email. <laughs> Just go. Right for retargeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. No worries. Exactly. <laughs> <Tread> lightly. <laughs> Unless you get in, then, like you said, it's, uh, you know, maybe I'll have higher engagement than ever. Yeah. What, one of the interesting things that I'm experimenting with is using the hey.com email address for outbound email. And uh, okay. there's something really seemingly dangerous about that. <laughs> you don't want to be the spammer that... that <laughs> yeah, you would be doing the exact thing they're trying to prevent, which actually might be... Yeah. But, but it does send a signal to people when they get your email, they're like, oh, this person's using that. They must value relationships over uh, spam. 
So Not sure, maybe they. Yeah, I wonder if they have a limit. Well, you, yeah, yeah, it really would force you to do kind of one one-off emails, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I took a half an hour to write a cold email last week, and you know, the person replies like, "Oh, wow, thank you for that really personal response." And the guy had a very cold, don't spam me LinkedIn profile. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. Over still overcoming rejection to this day, Steve. I like it. Oh, you have to. <laughs> um, so what uh what do you do for fun? Um well currently not very much uh with the quarantine. Uh I so a few years ago. When I was when I was really burning out on work in Vietnam, I realized I had no hobbies, and it was really sad. So I, to me, so I committed myself to uh, watching TV and movies again uh, and getting addicted to them because I felt like um, it was important to have something, <laughs> and I I knew it was reliable. So uh, a couple of years in of that, I was like, well, you know, probably don't want to watch that much TV. So I started branching out a little bit. Um, ended up doing a lot of improv, and um, that led to um, just yeah, taking workshops in a, a lot of different countries, and um, there's this whole scene of not like um, Chicago Saturday Night Live improv trying to be funny, but a very more of a Canadian European style. Um, I think coming out of um, Calgary um, is where the the main guy is, and uh, it's a lot more. It's actually a lot more fun and funny, but it's it's not trying to be funny, so it just you basically stay in there long enough and you get the really amazing comedy and that just yeah. comes from the truth of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, try to spend as much time doing that as I can. Um, it just feels like a great state to be in. Cool. Yeah. That's, uh, we used to have a, a show up here in Canada called whose line is it anyway? Yeah. I'm not sure if you ever saw that, but I, I, I think that's kind of more of the style you're talking about. Yeah, the theater sports, um, uh, the loose moose. I think it's a good yeah, 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 exactly. It's been a you while. You know, loose moose. I've seen that. I, it's been a long time, but yeah, that was like one of the four channels I had growing up. So, um, who who's one person in the business community that you uh, admire and why? Who do I admire in the business community? Uh, is this a multiple choice question? <laughs> <laughs> you can pick whoever you want. Oh, wow. Um, I, I guess I would go with uh, Reed Hastings. Um, I think at Netflix, right? Um, so honestly, I don't know that much about what he's done, but kind of watching uh, the way he's tried to scale culture and the way he's been willing to kill his own product um, mm. and, and keep going. It's uh, really amazing to, to see how he did that. And, and um, you know, I don't know if, how much of the story you know, but if I remember correctly, he, he built Netflix on the idea of actually on a computer science model of how data moves around and realized that that the the DVDs could just be packets in the in a in an internet driven by the post office, and so he was able to use by analogy realize that that the computer science background told taught him how to make this traditional delivery business that destroyed Blockbuster, 
Um, and that's just, but, yeah. and it, but anyone could do that. Like that's simple. Like that's, you know, you get lucky and you do that, but, but then to kill the DVD business and, and to, to move to streaming and to start a, a Hollywood uh, production house. Yeah. That that's is amazing. Yeah. yeah but they're into the content. All of these guys, I find like Netflix, um, Amazon Prime, Apple's trying to get into it now. It's like, well, why are we paying so much to get the licenses for these movies when we can just make them ourselves and own everything? And like watching the Academy Awards this year, or I forget, one of the award shows, like it was amazing how many movies won that were not Hollywood movies at all. I think that's, yeah, that's the full circle of that now. Um, and yeah, it's easy to have the idea, but to actually do it, that that's very impressive to me too. I have to have a second answer. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> got, got to break your rules. Um, Andrew Mason, actually, that's my strongest answer. Um, do, do, do you recognize no, him? I don't know. I don't know him. Oh, it's amazing. You will. You will know him. He started Groupon. Okay. And Groupon was a disaster. It was it was one of the early unicorns that got fueled by too much VC money and it collapsed and it's a shell of its former self. And anyone in his shoes could have just walked, you know, bought a private island, uh, yeah. relaxed with the rest of the world. No. He started two companies since then. The first one was a, was a failure. It was like a an audio walking tour of the cities and no one wanted it. <laughs> he yeah. sold it to some museum or something. But his, his second thing, his current thing is incredible. Um, this tool called Descript. Okay. And what it does is, um, what, what it's done for three years is you can transcribe your audio like this podcast and it'll automatically transcribe with AI and you can visually edit the audio by editing the text. Wow. So, yeah. Like, I, um, I could change what you're saying right now. You could remove words. Okay. Uh, without having to edit the sound file. It will edit the sound file for you. And it's free. That's crazy. Free. That's crazy, but it gets crazier. Yeah. They just released a feature where you can actually add someone's voice and add words back into the audio. It'll sample your voice and you can change words if you want to. I <laughs> could be very useful for this podcast, actually. Yes. I have a lot of editing to do on my own voice. <laughs> you, you can just have everyone say that you're their favorite. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there is another one that I... I watched this documentary on, I think, Crave. I forget the title of it, but it was a lot of the really good, like some of the best people from Apple started a second company. Do you know what I'm talking about? And they were actually working on like essentially the iPhone. Okay. Um, well, let me, I, have a, I have an audio thing. Let me get it. Yeah.
So I have a musical alarm clock that goes off at 8 p.m. Oh. Okay, it was good. Okay, so we can kind of edit this part, but uh, or not. It makes it look very authentic. I found it. It's called General Magic. Did you, have you seen it? No, is it? And it was people from Apple? So it was a bunch of people from Apple. Well, they recruited a bunch of people, like some of the best people from Apple. And their thing was they wanted to create, even before the iPhone came out, the iPhone. And, uh, but they were just too early because all of the components were not, they were all too big and just the execution wasn't great. But, but the founder had the idea for the iPhone. He just couldn't make it happen. And that they got a bunch of money and stuff, but it just never took off. And the founder is just like, I don't know, living in the Himalayas or something now. But, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I like, uh, if you fail, start, try again. Never know what happens. So yeah. last question, Steve. Um, oh. What... Uh, what's one piece of career advice that you have for other people that you might, that might help them? Well, I guess it depends on the person, right? Um, so it, it's, uh, don't be, don't become a life coach. <laughs> That's, do something that doesn't exist yet. Uh, you know, when, when I was in college, I, uh, I, would have loved to work in marketing technology, but it didn't exist. Uh, yeah. I thought I was going to work at Nike. I thought I was going to be a lawyer um, because those are the, the stories that people told me that those were the normal patterns. And to this day, I don't think my parents really know what I do. Uh, I'm not sure how to explain it to them because it didn't exist in their life and it's, it doesn't connect. But, um, but, and this isn't for everyone. Some people really need to be in a traditional business and, and if you're, you know, very traditional, maybe working in a bank is great because um, there's a history there, and you love the the fact that people have been in the same job for 500 years. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe that's who you are. It's fine, but for everyone else, uh, if if you like new stuff, um, there's so much new stuff, and and it's fun. If if you if you know that you enjoy uh, going off into a frontier, um, find a frontier in the career. Uh, if you don't like that, don't do it. But I, I think it's easy to not do it. I think a lot of people are unhappy with their with their work because they crave something that they don't know is possible. Um, mm -hmm. I think jobs are are declining. You know, employment's down. Um, there's you know the ability to get a job is getting harder, and it's not going to get any easier. Uh, we're not going to see um, infinite jobs in the future, but there are infinite problems to solve. So um, I guess a related thing to that is don't get an entry-level job. Um, when you're an entry-level job, it's the same job as everyone else, but find a unique skill you can contribute to a company. And then right away, you're no longer the entry-level person that, that came in as an interview. I've, I've never gotten a job when human resources got involved in the interview. As soon as HR is involved, it's like, oh, that's, this one's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Moody's out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll see myself out. I, I see. I, this, if if oh, yeah. HR gets involved. Hey, sure. Thanks. I'm just going to go home now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Right on. Well, uh, Steve, it's been great uh, chatting with you. I think, like, I just love your perspective on, you know, following your passion and uh, doing what makes you happy and trying to continue to solve problems and not not to be afraid of what might happen, but uh, yeah, just follow your passion and see what happens. And uh, if it works, great, but if it doesn't, try again. Um, so all, as always, great to catch up with you and uh, thanks so much for being on today. Yeah, thank you, Bears. It was great. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Unsubscribed, a podcast created by Knack. If you enjoyed this episode of Unsubscribed, be sure to subscribe to my podcast and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. If you have any feedback or want to chat, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at marketing underscore 101. Cheers.